Come now, let's settle this. Though your sin be as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Though your sin is, is as red as crimson, I will make it white as wool. If anyone is thirsty, come, let him drink. Even if he has no money, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. As Jesus walked by, he saw, he saw Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must come to your house today. Jesus said, come, and Peter walked on the water toward him. I am the bread of life. If anyone is hungry, come to me, and you will never be hungry again. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this come. If anyone is thirsty, come. From Isaiah all the way to the end of the pages in Revelation, we hear the invitation of Jesus to come. An invitation into his presence. An invitation to experience him and to know him and to see him for who he truly is. Come. Perhaps the most terrifying and exciting and life-changing words we can ever hear from God the Father. Come. Come and see. Last week we started with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which was humanity's cry for God to come to us. And this week we flip it around. O come, all ye faithful, is Jesus' cry from a manger in Bethlehem for us to come and behold him. 700 years before there were decrees that the empire should be taxed, before a star blazed across the sky, before a virgin conceived, before angels sang, before a cry went up from a manger in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed the coming of the king. He said the nations will come and the kings will bow before him. Isaiah gave a save the date for the coming of the king, an invitation into his presence. I love a good invitation, and I think a lot of times when, when we think about invitations, we think about the pieces of paper and the cards we get in the mail that invite us to parties, to events, to weddings, to birthdays. But there are other kinds of invitations that invite us into deeper relationships, that invite us into life-changing events. I think about 16 years ago this month at Monument Circle in downtown Indianapolis when I got down on one knee and I asked Tara and invited her to be a part of my life for the rest of our lives. And in that moment of joy, she said, she said yes, and everything changed. I love to be a part of invitations like that. And I think the core message of Christmas is an invitation to see who Jesus truly is. An invitation to behold him, to greet him, to adore him. It's an invitation to his coming. You know, most churches spend a lot of time inviting people to the cross, inviting people to that moment in time when Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for our sin. We invite people to see the substitution of Christ where we find salvation. We invite people to exchange their sin for his righteousness. We invite people metaphorically to the foot of the cross where the Savior died. We say, come. And that's probably the most important invitation we could ever possibly make. That's the place where history changed. It's the place where we will make the defining decision of our lives. 
When I talk with young people who are wanting to preach and learn how to communicate the gospel, I always tell them to open up the text, read it, and make a beeline for the cross. Because we want to invite people to the cross. But I wonder if sometimes we lose the power of the cross because we haven't invited people to the cradle first. We can't fully understand the death of the man on the cross until we understand the birth of the baby in the manger. We've got to be invited to the place where we understand the story of the baby so we can better understand the story of the man. When I was a kid, my family attended a Christmas program at a church in another city, and it was this huge production. There were camels and sheep and donkey and, and, and animals, and they were all coming down the aisles of the church. Angels flew in. Not real ones, I don't think. But, but it was a big deal. If I remember right, it, it was an hour-long program celebrating the Christmas story followed by a 15-minute intermission. Then after the break, everyone came back in to watch the Easter story play out because it didn't count if people weren't invited to the cross. And looking back, it was almost like they approached the Christmas story as if it were the family-friendly, fun, peaceful, happy start to the more important events of the story. And while I certainly don't want to downplay in any way the importance of the cross, I want to elevate what happened in the manger. I want to bring our attention to the importance of coming and seeing Christ for who he really is because when we see Jesus, it changes everything. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't help but fall down and worship. The miracle of Easter begins with the miracle of Christmas. The substitution of the man on the cross makes no sense without the incarnation of the baby in the manger. Uh, incarnation is kind of a fancy theological term that simply means that God became flesh, that, that God became a human being. As the carol, O come all ye faithful, declares, he is the word of God now in flesh appearing. So we'll get to the cross, but let's start at the manger. I think we have this idea that the Christmas story is a nice start. It's a fun time of year. It's this moment in the church calendar when everything is peaceful because Jesus was the Prince of Peace and he came to bring peace. And so we have these ideal scenes of nature and snow and carolers and shepherds that look all nice and clean huddled around the manger. And we sing about how the night was so silent despite the fact that there were angels flying around scaring people out of their minds. One of our favorite carols, Away in a Manger, has this little phrase about this baby, though he awakes, no crying he makes. And I just got to think that that carol was not written by a woman who was a mother. What we have to understand is that part of the miracle of the incarnation is that God was fully human and that God, the Redeemer, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe, became a fetus in the womb of a woman. He was born. He had a physical birth. He grew, he cried, he slept, he ate food. He experienced what we experienced. He was tempted like we are tempted. He was fully man, flesh and blood, the incarnation, God Almighty come in the skin of his own creation. He was fully man. 
And because he was fully man, he was able to take our place because when he hung on a cross, he hung on the cross as a man and suffered and died as a man and therefore could represent us to God. One of the very first bad teachings to show up in the church was this idea that Jesus couldn't have possibly been a man. Because if Jesus was holy, then there was no way that he could be like one of us. And so he just appeared to be a man. He just gave the appearance of of being a man. He showed up in human form, but he wasn't really flesh and blood. And this was such a big deal that the Apostle Paul, in many of his letters, he uh, addresses that particular bad teaching. We see it in in the letter to the Colossians. He, He talks about Jesus being a man. The other miracle of the incarnation is that this baby in the manger who was born of a woman was also fully God. His birth was supernatural. Later in life, he claimed to be God. The demons claimed that he was God. God declared him to be God. He worked miracles. He did things that no other man had ever done. But he lived a perfect, sinless life, and because of that, he was able to stand in our place and without sin and without corruption, take our place and represent us to God, but also represent God to us. The miracle of Christmas is that when we see Jesus, we see one who is fully man and fully God. One of the next bad teachings to show up in the church got so out of hand that there was a church council that was called in the fourth century. Church leaders from all over the empire showed up to talk about this idea that maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. And there was this guy by the name of Arius who was preaching that Jesus was not actually God, that he was not co-eternal with God or co-equal with God. Rather, he thought that God the Father created Jesus and that he was a a created being just like everything else. So at the council, Arius was sharing his views and, and teaching this doctrine. And there was a bishop that got so ticked off that he got up, he walked across the room, and he punched Arius in the face while he was teaching. This particular bishop's name was St. Nicholas. And in the very beginning, St. Nicholas's naughty or nice list had nothing to do with whether you were a saint or a sinner, but whether or not you were a heretic. Now, I am a sucker for a good internet meme. And so you need to indulge me for just a moment as I share with you some of my favorite St. Nicholas memes. Uh, The first one's this. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've denied the divinity of Christ, so duck. Here's another one. Deck the halls? Try deck the heretic. Or my personal favorite. This sounds like a, a Chuck Norris joke. I came here to give presents and punch heretics, and I'm all out of presents. See, St. Nicholas protected this idea that the baby we see in Bethlehem in a manger who is fully God, and when we see that, it should leave us awestruck. It should leave us in a place of complete wonder at the mystery of Christmas. So I want us to turn in Scripture and see the cast of characters who are part of this because honestly, where they lived was not this place of abstract theory. They lived in a real life of pressures, of of chaos, of family and friends, of of trials and temptations. And even though they lived in a land halfway around the world from us 2,000 years ago, their world probably didn't look that much different than ours in terms of the pressures they faced and the questions they asked. 
And so if you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be in Matthew and Luke this morning. In Matthew chapter 1, we start with a story about a man named Joseph, a man who lived a very simple life in a town called Nazareth, a very conservative religious town. And in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we read this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Now this story has become so familiar to us, but do we ever stop to think about what's happening here? Joseph lives in this very conservative, very religious place, and we're told he's a good man. And he's learned that his bride-to-be, this woman that he loves, this woman that he's invited to spend the rest of her life with him, has betrayed him. He shows up pregnant. He's embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated. He has to make decisions not only about how he's going to respond personally to this news, but he also has to make a decision about how he's publicly going to react to this news. Because both Jewish and secular law at the time gave him every right as a fiance to publicly shame her and humiliate her, even to put her to death. But Joseph was a good man, and he decided to do it quietly so as not to bring any more shame upon her. Then he has a dream, and an angel shows up, and some prof- and he quotes some prophet from 700 years prior, and Joseph wakes up, wakes up and that's, that's enough for him. And so he goes and, and he takes Mary into his home. I would have had a few questions first. I would have needed some things settled. I probably would have wanted the angel to show up and, and tell everyone in the town, here's what's going on. So not only has he dealt with the shame and the humiliation of this woman that he so desperately loves embarrassing him, but now he's taking her into his house as if nothing happened potentially communicating to the entire village that this was his child. And then he's committed to raising this child who is not his own. Evidently, there was something in the angel's command that this is Emmanuel, God with us, that caused him to see Jesus differently. And when he saw Jesus for who he was, it caused him to react in a way that went against everything that he knew. It changed the course of his life. He was willing to risk his reputation, his relationships. He was willing to live in a way that went against all of the socially accepted norms of his day because he saw something different about Jesus. Meanwhile, Mary has her own experience. Flip over to Luke chapter 1. We see her story beginning in verse 28. It says, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. 
Now, this might be the understatement of the entire Bible. You're just kind of at home, minding your own business, and an angel shows up and says, greetings, woman. You're highly favored. The Lord is with you. I'd probably be a little confused and disturbed as well. Verse 29 continues, and wondered what kind of greeting this may be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Mary is invited in to the grand adventure of God. Not just to come watch from afar. Not just to come and see what God is doing. But God is going to come inside of you and God is going to come into the world through you. Mary is invited in to the story, risking her reputation and her relationships. And Mary's not a passive observer in this story. She says, yes, whatever the Lord would have for me, I'm in, let's go. She responds to the invitation that she's been given, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary and Joseph were invited into the chaos. They were invited into very difficult places. Experiencing the thrill of hope for them meant first walking through years of uncertainty, years of whispered comments from people in the village, years of risk, and yet anticipation that what they saw and what they heard was real and therefore changed everything. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, another group, the shepherds, were invited in. Luke 2 verse 8 reads, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then the angels sing, and we jump down to verse 16. So they hurried and found, out, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So shepherds, more ordinary people, were invited into an extraordinary adventure. They were invited to come see Jesus. They came and they saw, and their response was to run out and tell everyone they could find and to glorify and praise God. Meanwhile, Mary, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of animals and angels singing, 
in the midst of snowy shepherds coming to, to visit her after she had just given birth. Mary, she thinks on what she's experienced and what God has done in her life. And she reflects on the child that she holds. She has been invited to see Jesus. And she saw something that night that she kept close to her heart for her entire life. Oh, come, let us adore him. A baby in a feeding trough for, man, for animals. God in human flesh, the, the creator in the skin of his own creation. Does that not just leave us with a sense of wonder? Does that not leave us awestruck and dumbfounded? That, that God the Almighty comes in the form of a baby? Oh, come, let us adore him. Let us see him for who he really is. These people, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, they do not respond to the invitation just because it happened to show up. They realized that God was doing something and they wanted to be a part of it. The word adoration means to worship God for who he is. Not for what he has done, but for who he is. And what we find is that when we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't not worship him. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it leaves us awestruck with a sense of wonder. One of the things I find is that adoration helps us to see Christ more fully. And when we see Christ more fully, it leads us to more adoration. It's the reason there's this endless refrain in heaven of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's on repeat because the more God is worshipped, the more he is seen, and the more he is seen, the more we are called to worship. Oh, come, let us adore him. When we see him for who he really is, we have to worship. We have to adore him. We have to come into his presence to see who he is and worship him for who he is. Fully man and fully God. One thing that I absolutely believe about good theology is that good theology should always lead to two things. One, worshiping God more rightly, and two, living more like him. I don't think that adoration is just a state of mind or a state of heart, but, but adoration is something that moves us into action. So when we have good theology and we see Christ for who he really is, it should change everything about us. Go back for a moment to the characters who were on that invite list of the original Christmas Day. Think about Joseph. Adoration for him meant moving him to a place of action. It wasn't just about him having a certain mindset or a certain feeling. It moved him to act in a way that was outside of the choices that he would normally make. So let's get real practical about this right now because I think that the best theology is very, very practical. Many of us, we get so wrapped up in the chaos and the insanity of Christmas. And sometimes that chaos and insanity is good. It's trying to finish all your shopping and getting the presents wrapped at two o'clock in the morning and realizing that you're out of tape, right? Sometimes it's darker than that. It's family tensions that have been around for decades that no one really talks about. What does it mean for us to act like Joseph in the stories of our own lives? 
When Joseph saw Jesus for, for who he really was, he decided to take an action that put someone else's higher good above his own. How can we act in a way this Christmas that we put someone else's highest good at the forefront of how we act? How do we love our family and our friends? How do we act in a way that goes against what our normal desires, our normal comforts, our, our normal choices would be? How do we love people in the midst of chaos and uncertainty? See, worship isn't just something we experience for 20 minutes at a church service. Worship is the way we live. Worship is the way we adore Christ. And so first, adoring Christ means living like him. Adoring Christ means responding to the invitation he's given us to come and see who he is and then change the way that we walk because of it. A second way that adoration expresses itself is through taking time to think and, and to reflect and to contemplate on what Jesus has done. It's how we see Mary responding on that first Christmas night in the midst of chaos and craziness. It says that she pondered these things in her heart. She stored them in her heart and she reflected upon them and she thought about them often. You know, part of me gets really tired of hearing preachers talk about how we've lost the true meaning of Christmas and how we all need to slow down and, and this is supposed to be a time where, where we're not running so fast. Because when I read the original Christmas story, you know what? It was chaotic and it was crazy. I think chaos and insanity is the reality of the world that we live in. The question is not, is the world around us full of peace? But what kind of peace are we bringing into the world in which we live in? I think it's about finding moments in the midst of, of the insanity and the chaos to reflect on what Jesus has done in our lives and, and to celebrate it. To reflect on who he really is and then celebrate him for it. Uh, one of the apps that, that I check almost daily on my phone is this app called Time Hop and it just shows you your past videos or photos or posts from, from this date in history. And so I'll open it up and I'll see pictures of, of, of church events and baby pictures of my kids and trips that we've taken as a family. And, and so Time Hop, strangely, has become this, this, this source of incredible gratitude that, that I have towards God. It's almost this, this daily reminder of, of how God has been so good for, for giving me a a beautiful family and, and wonderful friends and an incredible ministry. So I want to ask you, what do you need to stop and thank God for? Maybe right now you need to start making that, that list of things that you're thankful for. Is there somebody in your life that, that you need to communicate thanks to? Uh, finally, adoration sometimes expresses itself as proclamation. Uh, Mark Batterson defines worship as bragging about God to God and evangelism as bragging about God to others. And the shepherds did both of that on that night. Adoration for them, seeing Jesus for who he really was, led them to worship God, to brag about God to God, and then also to brag about God to others. They went out and they told everyone they could find. So I want to ask you, who do you need to invite to church over the next couple of weeks? There are people in your life, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, who are more open to church and Christ during the Christmas season than they are at any other time during the year. 
Who do you need to talk to about the goodness of God in your life? You know, sometimes adoration is not just a song that we sing, but words that we say to others that declare who God is in our lives. Adoration leads us to places where we proclaim who God is. It leads us to places that go against our normal choices because we believe and we want to embrace the highest good of another person. Sometimes it leads us to places of thanksgiving. Christmas is an invitation to see Jesus for who he is, to love him, to adore him, to be caught up in the experience of his life. So there are two places that I want to invite you to today. I want to invite you first to the cradle, to see Jesus for who he really is, the mystery of the incarnation, fully man, fully God, creator almighty come to the earth, and some of us need to pause and reflect and adore him for who he is. And then some of you need to be invited to the cross, Because the cross starts making so much more sense when we understand what happens in the cradle. We see man, fully human, fully divine, taking our place for our sins. He came to earth for the very purpose of taking our place on the cross. So if you've looked at Jesus, but you've never made him the center of your life, why not? Come to a place today where adoring Christ is not just looking at a peaceful scene on a postcard that you get in the mail. It's coming to the foot of the cross and realizing that who he is and what he did are connected. It's at the cradle that we recognize who he is, and it's at the cross that we must respond to what he's done. And when we see him for who he really is, it leads us to adoration. And when we engage in adoration, it causes us to see him more fully. Come, let us adore him.